welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm your co-host, Megan Vol. And this is exciting because it's our first interview of 2024. Yay. So welcome back to the studio. All right. And for our first interview, we are here with Jacob Evoy. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're super excited to hear about your research. Could you just tell us very briefly what it is you do here at Western? Very briefly, <laughs> and then we'll ask you more questions based off that. Or in depth. You can go in depth. Just dive right in. Uh, so I'm a PhD candidate uh, completing a collaborative degree in gender, sexuality, women's studies, and transitional justice and post-conflict reconstruction. Uh, so my research examines the intersection of queer experience with intergenerational trauma. So my research uh, for my dissertation has been an oral history with LGBTQ plus children of Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you're doing a collaborative degree. So did you start out in one and then add the other for your PhD or have you always been kind of mm -hmm. in the two different fields? Uh, I think something that's very common with a lot of women's studies students, uh, we're very interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I have a master's in history, so I'm actually his, a historian by training, mm -hmm. uh, but I've done, focused on histories of, of the Holocaust and genocide. And so then when I joined, when I started my PhD, the TJ Center was just getting up and running. I think it was its first or its second year. Mm -hmm. And so someone that was familiar with my work uh, offered to bring asked me to join and so I thought this was a great opportunity where I can melt the, a bunch of the things that I really am passionate about um, and so it just kind of happened very organically I didn't go looking for it mm -hmm. I was asked it was brought to my attention I was like yeah I can really fit in there as well so that's how it went that went down mm -hmm. <laughs> and Jacob I think there's a lot of terms that we've just kind of glossed over a little bit in that in that description which is really good and really thorough um, so for our listeners who maybe don't have as much experience um, can you just tell us a little bit about queer experiences and then queer experiences in the Holocaust? Because I don't think that's a topic that I've heard at least a lot about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't get a lot of attention. It, it's slowly a very, it's starting to get a lot more attention uh, within academia. Um, so the terms you asked me for were which again? Queer experiences first. Let's start with that. <laughs> okay, uh, queer experience. How do I even begin to... I, I always get frustrated, not frustrated, but always like deer in headlights moment when someone's like, can you define queer for me? And I'm like, well, by definition, there is no definition of this mm -hmm. word. Mm -hmm. um, so what I am kind of just viewing as queer experiences, I take this as a very, a very broad approach because I didn't want to, at least in my research, because I don't want to limit what that is. But normally it will refer to those who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community and their experiences of something. Um, but even I don't limit it to a specific type of identity. You don't have to identify as LGBTQ mm -hmm. or any other ident queer identity to have queer experiences. So queer experiences are something that uh, we view as something that is challenging, disrupting, or exposing a norm. It, 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 so something that is going against the norm uh, can be so a man wearing a dress, for mm -hmm. instance, uh, I was talking about this with my students today. So, you know, we understand a dress to be in our society, something that only a woman wears um, due to how we understand sex, gender, and we interpret bodies when we see them. And so when all of a sudden there's a man wearing a dress, mm -hmm. while this is becoming more normalized in our society today, there's still a moment of disjuncture when we see something that doesn't fully commute or compute mm -hmm. uh when we see like 
that fabric isn't supposed to be cut that way and put on that body. Right. Um, so that for me is a queer experience, okay. um, something that is disrupting the norms uh, of how we understand a quote unquote normal way of being. Mm -hmm. You're educating me because I, I asked that question both for the listeners, but also for myself as well, because I hear this word a lot and, you know, I don't think there's a lot. I don't think we hear a lot about what it means in, in that context. So that's really helpful for me. So then um, points of disruption, disjuncture, and you're taking this in the context of the Holocaust. Of the Holocaust and more specifically, I guess, in the post-Holocaust. So mm -hmm. um, there are a lot I... I I am quite familiar with queer experiences during the Holocaust. Uh, that was one of my master's degrees was a focus on that. Um, so I do have uh, experience with that. So queer experiences in the Holocaust can be also extremely broad. Um, so, you know, a lot of research has gone into uh, Anna Hanakova. I can't remember her last name. We'll cut that out. So a lot. <laughs> okay. Uh, so a lot of research has gone into queer experiences of the Holocaust. Uh, one area, for example, is sexual barter, the use of sexual barter in a concentration camp. Um, how you can mobilize same-sex desire of the guards, or uh, whether that be SS guards or of your fellow prisoners, uh, to get some sort of payment or reward, whether it be extra food, less uh, heart, a less difficult work detail, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, but other queer experiences that I am more focused on with, at least within this project, um, is very much based on we have a normal idea of what someone's life is going to be like. <clears throat> and for children of Holocaust survivors, uh, something that comes up in the literature a lot, whether this be a queer focus or not queer focus, is the need, for example, to have children. Mm -hmm. uh, your family, your extended family, for many of them, of the participants that I interviewed, many of their extended family was completely wiped out during the Holocaust or many of their relatives had been murdered. Mm -hmm. um, so when that happens to your family within, within the context of intergenerational trauma, there's a huge pressure. I mean, we're all pressured to have children um, <laughs> and, and today, especially <laughs> women. Uh, but for children of survivors, when your family and your community has survived a genocide, mm -hmm. that that pressure is that much more. So, you know, some of my participants spoke about even unprompted from me just said I was raised and I was trained to be straight and to have children mm -hmm. that was my purpose in life growing up so what happens then for, for from my vantage point as a queer researcher uh, that's kind of how I got into this project actually I was reading a study and it was all talking about children of survivors and their and how they're having children and I ran to my supervisor's office and I was like this is so straight like what about those who don't want to have children or especially <laughs> when we're thinking the 60s 70s and 80s when you can't have children uh, when adoption is extremely difficult when the mm -hmm. the levels of homophobia I'm not trying to downplay homophobia today, but there are still very rampant levels uh, back then where being queer was still considered a mental illness. Mm -hmm. How are you going to have children or are you going to force yourself into a heterosexual relationship to fulfill this kind of goal that you that you've been told is your purpose in life? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, that's kind of how I entered into this uh, examination of queer experiences and intergenerational trauma post-Holocaust. So, mm -hmm. so my research is specifically looking at children whose parents survived. Mm -hmm. um, did that answer your question? Both questions? Yes. <laughs> okay. it, no, in, in very depth. And I have a lot of questions <laughs> ab about that, what you're explaining. Um, no, that, that's super interesting. Um, 
I don't think this is something we hear a lot about in like the history of World War uh, World mm-hmm. War Two, post Holocaust, any of that. I certainly didn't know. Um, how can I just ask and come out? I'm going to come out and say, it. how did how do the how did the people you were interviewing or talking to how do they did they feel like you're talking about really complex uh, issues? And I would imagine there's a lot of complex feelings that are coming up there too. Oh mm-hmm. yes, for sure. Um, the interviews were somewhat uh, I think it helped somewhat that many of my participants were uh, 60 or, or older I interviewed six, 16 one six people um, and all except one were born in the 40s and 50s mm-hmm. and what very early 60s one was born in the late in, in the early 80s whose father was a child that was hidden during the Holocaust so there was this kind of generational divide but this also meant that many of them had had a lot of time to sit and to percolate and to mm-hmm. uh, to then reflect back on these things. So the emotions were very high. Um, the emotions specifically uh, surrounding having to have children, there was a variety, of course. Um, some, you know, not all queer people don't want to have kids. Um, mm-hmm. And many of my participants do, do have children. Uh, so they were able to make that work for them. And they they knew, they talked about how, you know, even from a young age, I always wanted to have kids. So one of uh, Joseph, uh, a man, a gay man I interviewed, talked about, you know, even from five years old, when I was in elementary school, I knew the names of what my kids were going to be. Like he was very excited about them. For others, this created a huge rift in their family. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, or immense feelings of guilt. That was something that came up a lot of. So one participant, uh, Lucy, repeatedly said, you know, I knew that the the thing that would make my parents the happiest would be to have children, but I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. That's not me. And I know how happy it would have made them. And especially, you know, for children of survivors, when when your parents have survived something so horrendous, so traumatic, you don't want to bring them any more pain or suffering. Right. Yeah. And so this idea that they weren't able to give their parents grandchildren uh, was something that they had accepted but still felt immense guilt over. Um, And that was something that was shared across a few of the different participants. But they also recognized, like, that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there were feelings of guilt, but also of, but I'm still so happy that I didn't because I have loved what I've been able to do and the ways that they created other types of families mm-hmm. uh, with the queer community of chosen families. Uh, they're like, I have children, but they're not my children. I didn't mm-hmm. raise them, but I helped raise them in the community, mm-hmm. that type of thing. So mm-hmm. a lot of this was also ways in which they found new ways of creating connections and bonds um, that weren't strictly biological or based in this kind of normative construct of parent, child, grandchild, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It, it totally did. So you're asking people, okay, this is really cool because <laughs> you've got these Holocaust survivors and their kids. And it seems like that would cause problems no matter what. Like even if you're like the most normal, boring person <laughs> on earth, if your parents survived the Holocaust, you're going to be dealing with guilt. You're going to be dealing with these things. But you, you're you looking at through the lens of queer experience, which is going to be like doubling the problems, it seems. Like if you're already, you already have parents with a problem and then you're going to be like, sorry, now I'm going to deal with extra guilt. So did you find that their experience was very different from, say, straight, regular old people, their experience with their parents? Or was it even harder for them? Because it mm-hmm. seems like it, they're dealing with more things. Yeah, they're, 
It really depends. Like there were some, it was really funny because there was one moment in, sorry, it made me think of one interview where I asked the participant to introduce herself and kind of give me, you know, what did you want to tell me about being a lesbian daughter of survivors? Mm -hmm. And then, so she went on this, this beautiful spiel of, of her life as a child of survivors. And then she all of a sudden stopped and she's like, but I'm leaving out the gay part. And she said, well, I don't have any horror stories for you. Mm. And so she was like, you know, I've always been supported. Um, and, you know, when we, when they ended up, her and her partner ended up adopting, she talked about how her dad was concerned. He was like, oh, like, well, do you think it'll be a problem that your wife isn't Jewish? Um, <laughs> and, she should, and she was just, exactly, she laughed too. She was like, yeah. I don't think if, of all the issues that we yep. might face in this world, I don't think that's going to be the one that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so... There was a lot of, I mean, we also have in our collective minds in North America and in the West, especially, uh, to say about this delicately, we put Holocaust survivors on this pedestal right. that the, that we tend to view victims and survivors of atrocities as these angelic, perfect beings. Mm. Um, and so whenever I give talks about this, people are always like, how could a Holocaust survivor be homophobic? Like they should be. They should be accepting of all people. Uh, like, mm-hmm. they went through the Holocaust. How yeah. could they not understand discrimination? Well, they understand discrimination, but that doesn't mean that they aren't still yeah. living in the world in which they are living. Right? Um, right? Like, the, these, the parents grew up in a homophobic society, and the children, we are still living in a homophobic yeah. and transphobic society. Um, so it's not... This isn't to besmirch or to say that they are bad people, mm-hmm. um, but that we recognize that that they are people and mm-hmm. they are fallible, that they make mistakes. And so there there were issues of homophobia uh, with several of the participants. But for many, it became a learning process like it mm-hmm. is for so many that their parents were against it. But then eventually, like, you know, they learn um, and others it ended it ended all communication with parent with their right. families or or close to near all co- all communication um so there was a wide spectrum of reactions and so i i position this not as trying to compare lgbtq children of survivors to straight experiences right. i don't yeah. want to to center the straight experiences mm-hmm. um but there are differences, obviously. But there were also a lot of similarities. And I wouldn't say that some are worse or, mm-hmm. or better. It's just that they had to, they were confronted with different challenges and hurdles that they had to overcome. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like many queer people, they had to come out. They had to yeah. figure out, and especially being raised in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, many of them had no access to even understand what being queer meant mm-hmm. um one participant talked about you know i rem- he remembered i'm just speaking as him he said mm-hmm. you know i remember going to the library and pulling out the dictionary and finding homosexual and it's oh it's a mental illness it is yeah. a pervert it is this all of these terrible things or one of my participants talked about for me growing up until he was in his 20s even even past that being queer meant that you were going to be unhappy, mm-hmm. that you would be unsatisfied and would most likely lead to your death. Um, and he was like, you know, I was starting to come out of that. And then AIDS hit. Yeah. Um, and so it just kind of reinforced all of these societal messages that was telling that I wasn't worth anything, that I'm going to die because of this um, and that we are not worth worth saving. 
Um, so there were a lot of challenges that queer children of survivors face that were different uh, or heightened because of their queerness. I, I think I answered your I question. You or at least I started. Very well. <laughs> I think you answered it very well. No, I, I really like how um, you did take the time, though, to explain there, there are differences from the straight experience to the queer experience. And again, I do think that's something I think even today um, we maybe don't, that's not really talked about or explained as much as it could be, or at least in the resources I've come across. So I, I appreciate that. Um, my question, I think, is going to go back into that dark territory of, of negative. Um, when you were talking to um, these children of Holocaust survivors, um, were did they ever experience where their parents may not, I'm, I don't know how to phrase this exactly, but they weren't, they wanted to be supportive of their children, but they were also worried that, you know, I lived through the Holocaust. This was an example of someone taking a group of people, ostracizing and in fact killing many of them. And I'm worried that because you also belong to a group that is um, marginalized, ostracized, something like that might happen to you. And I don't want you to come out publicly about this. Was there ever experiences oh, of that? Oh, yes. Great question. Um, that That's something that is very a common thing within... Uh, survivor households and their families is that you don't make waves. You don't bring attention to yourself, mm -hmm. um, whether that be, you know, even hiding your Jewish identity so that people can't rat you out if, mm -hmm. if it ever happens again, um, that you don't get too close because you, you don't know, you can't trust anybody outside of the family. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, that is the only support that you're going to have. Um, so for many participants, they did talk about, you know, this is another, their parents just viewed it as you're putting yourself in danger. Mm -hmm. You are putting yourself by coming out or living openly as queer that you are just adding another, on top of already being Jewish, you are now adding another thing, reason for people to hate you and to target you. Mm -hmm. um, so that did come across. But for most participants, that wasn't a, I'm not going to do this. Um, no, right. no one talked about their parents asking them not to. There were experiences of that, I guess. Yeah, now that I'm thinking of it, yeah, there were some where... I, this was, I always, I found this kind of funny and we had a good laugh and this came up during the interview. So one of the participants, Levy, uh, a trans person from Toronto was talking about when he first was coming out, he didn't know if he was bi, if he was gay, uh, like being trans that didn't really exist uh, within his knowledge base or within his community. So when he first came out, everything, there was a, there was a rumble in the household. Um, but then when he came out as trans and transitioned uh, to being a man and was getting then if it was marrying his partner, uh, a woman, his mother was just like, oh my gosh, well now what am I going to tell the neighbors? Um, <laughs> oh. Like I've already told them that you were, that you were queer, not, they didn't use that language that you were gay or that you were bi or whatever, mm -hmm. but now you're, now they're going to see a man coming in with a woman. <laughs> so now you're straight. And he's like, well, no, I'm not straight. Yeah. Um, but like, so I don't know. I, we, fa we had a good laugh that, you know, it actually almost caused more disruption with his family, uh, with one of his parents, when he entered a quote-unquote straight relationship or an opposite-sexed mm. relationship, mm -hmm. uh, that all of a sudden it was, well, now how am I going to explain right. this n appearingly normal relation, again, in quotation, yeah. normal relationship <laughs> yes, to yeah. the neighbors? Um, I forget your original question. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, that, that, that did answer it. Um, 
no i was just curious because i could very much see a parent being like you know i'm just worried for you um for your well-being just because you know i survived this um i don't want something to happen to you and Mm -hmm. out of that concern and that's certainly not to to downplay any of the experiences where they genuinely weren't being supportive but i did wonder if you know something like that was happening oh Mm -hmm. for sure and and you know that was part of also coming out for many participants was not that i'm not going to do this but this is another thing that i'm adding to cause disruption or that might cause pain for Mm -hmm. my parents but yes there were definitely experiences of you're making yourself a target so we need you need to find a ways to protect yourself Mm -hmm. um so for me i view that as very supportive of course they don't want their children to come to harm and you know i think that's still something that happens even today that we see but within the context of some a family member already surviving a genocide it becomes that much more weighted Mm -hmm. um of we know what can happen and i mean with the onset of the aids epidemic you know, the, at one point there was a poll where it was something like, I'll have to double check the figures. Uh, <laughs> but it, the poll was terrifying with how many Americans thought that anybody who was living with HIV or AIDS should be placed in a concentration camp. Uh-huh. So like even during that period in the 80s, in the early to mid 80s, there was a real fear, um, especially amongst queer people of like, what are we going to do and what is going to happen to us? That's a side tangent. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's really maybe you should come back and do another <laughs> episode about it. I'm happy to come back anytime. <laughs> but um, I did want to kind of get into your methodology because you said you did oral histories. What is that exactly? Ooh, good question. Uh, So oral history in its most basic form is solving or investigating a historical problem, historical question using oral sources. Largely, this this means you're going to interview people that were there, (laughs) that are actually there. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge debate, still frustratingly, a huge ongoing debate within the field of history, the discipline of history of like, well, oral history is subjective because people's memories can be faulty. For some reason, we place more value if someone wrote something down on a document mm-hmm. than if they speak it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for for me, uh, for this project, you know, I found there are some who have written and published about their experiences of being a queer child of survivors, um, but not a lot. And for many of them, they don't really... With, only one exception many of them don't really focus too much on themselves they're more about telling their parents story than their own Mm -hmm. so for me I also love oral history because I I'm also fascinated by historical memory um, and collective memory and how we assign meaning to history and oral history is a practice in meaning making so we are making sense of the past in the space of the interview where people are trying to so when i sat down and my opening question to to participants was can you please tell me about your life as a insert queer identity that they gave me before the interview as a lgbtq child of a holocaust survivor or of holocaust survivors and for some, that question was extremely jarring of, oh my gosh, what? Like, and, and I get that, just all of a sudden being asked, tell me about your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but through the process of interviewing and then reflecting on the past, we, re- we remember and then we assign meaning to what those events are. They will tell, sometimes they will tell you, oh, like this is how now I understand this event in my life. I didn't understand it that way when it was happening to me, but mm-hmm. now looking back, um, and we can also see how... the narratives are constructed within the space of an interview. So that's something I'm also really interested in. So, you know, the participants have lived through 
the modern queer rights era. Um, you know, from Sto- like one of the participants attended Stonewall. Um, so they have witnessed everything from pre-Stonewall to the present. And that comes with, within queer history, with specific types of narratives of how we understand ourselves as queer people and how we tell our own stories. So when that one participant said, I don't have any horror stories for you, it's because so many queer stories just changed in the last like 10 years or so are tragedy stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first kind of modern uh, breakout Hollywood blockbuster, it was was Brokeback Mountain and where... Terrible ending, yeah. um, like and or we can think of Boys Don't Cry with Hilary Swank, like uh, queer people's experiences, and we still have the trope of barrier gaze, um, where queer characters are often killed off in the end. Queers don't get happy endings, um, and especially within popular culture, that was especially present in. Uh, and I mean, I could get into the history of how <laughs> the movie codes uh, brought about brought this about, but you know they had this understanding that a queer experience requires a horror story, that it requires Mm -hmm. something negative for me to have that be worth or to be a true, accurate depiction, where I... That was something early on in this project that I... I'm going on a little tangent again, but that I noticed very quickly when I was going to be framing this through the lens of trauma and intergenerational trauma, which you have to. You can't not bring trauma and trauma studies into this. But at one point, I was just like... I'm inflicting further violence upon these narratives that people are going to be sharing with me by only focusing on trauma. Um, There's so much more to their lives than their parents' Holocaust experiences or even the the horror story, the quote-unquote horror stories of being queer. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really came through in the interviews when they were just like how much joy they have, Um, the strong connections some have with their family members, with their parents, the ways that they are able to forge new bonds and forge new communities still made itself known, and I wanted to be sure to bring that forward. And I forget your original question, but that was the answer. (laughs) No, it's it's, you answered it. You answered it. But uh, part of the reason I asked is because when you talk about your participants' experiences, it's like you've built a relationship with them too. You're taking all my questions. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But there is, there is. You you speak about this as if, you know, you've gotten to know them over a very long period. Which ironically, it was not long at all. Mm -hmm. Um, For financial reasons and time reasons, I only did a single interview, Um, which for me, the decision to do that was financial and time. Uh, Grad student is fast and it is very expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... It also then helped a lot with the interviews because participants knew this is the only time this person is going to be here to ask my story. So the stories, especially when they answered that first very big, open, broad question, and I I started to warn them uh, about that question Mm -hmm. before the interview. After the first couple, it didn't work. And (laughs) so I was like, okay, we need to switch the guys up. But anyways, so the things that they answered there within oral history, going back to your oral history question, you know, that means that their response to that first question are the things that they really want to tell me. Right. Mm-hmm. That they think are very important in, in our attempts to understand and document their lives as queer children of survivors. And so that's something else that oral history really offers. And it was something that was very challenging. Like, you know, as interviewing, you're listening, you're checking your notes, you're making sure you're like panicked that the recorder is still working, <laughs> that it had, the battery hasn't died or something. There are a million and one things going through your mind in an interview. 
especially with with these interviews I found for the vast majority of participants it was it almost became like we were just sitting and talking like old friends there were limits obviously placed on what we were talking about and what they were willing to share especially for knowing it was going on to the historical record and stuff um, but it was a very intense bond fieldwork is is emotional it is physically and mentally and emotionally draining mm-hmm. um, and demanding especially when you're listening to real sometimes very difficult stories very mm-hmm. hard stories um, and you have to find your own coping mechanisms luckily for me I did all my interviews at least the ones that I had to to really travel for in New York and San Francisco uh, I did them all back to back within like a week and a half so like I didn't wow. fully have the time to fully process everything that they were saying Mm -hmm. and in some ways that is a disservice um, to them that I wasn't I made sure that like okay I am listening to this story but if I fully feel this story right now I'm going to be the one here in tears (laughs) and they're going to have to console me Um, (laughs) so I, I managed to keep myself busy and to find ways of coping and being able to respond to them in the moment. Um, And it was then when I came back and I was transcribing the interviews where I allowed myself to fully feel them. And Mm -hmm. my partner would be like, what's wrong as I'm just crying (laughs) and sobbing? (laughs) Sometimes out of just pure joy and laughter and other times of just like having my heart torn out. It was a very challenging. And that's something that I don't think you get from other kind of historical investigations. You know, I'm very fortunate that I'm doing history uh, where people are still alive Mm -hmm. uh, to talk about it uh, or at least some are and so you know I'm sure other historians find like they have those documents that they love but being able to actually work with people um, and interview them and hear their stories and being trusted to work with those stories um, was something that was very powerful and very meaningful um, and really guides how I am writing the dissertation and then Mm -hmm. going to be sharing that work as Mm -hmm. well. Well, you- that's amazing. And you know what? We've, we've learned so much from you. I wish we could talk to you for another hour and a half. Like, I, I'm sad, but it, the interview is ending. So thank you so much for coming on GradCast and sharing with us about your research. Oh, thank you so much. And you pointed out the most important part about being an interviewer is listening. And again, it has been a pleasure to listen to you. I agree. Thank yeah. you so much. So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Megan Vole, and my co-host was Amelie Hutchinson, and we've been speaking with uh, Jacob... Evoy. Evoy. And this episode was produced by Maria Khan. Uh, if you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio and TikTok now at that exact address. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western at 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your night.